Ecclesiastes last week, as I mentioned to you last week. Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books in the Bible. Favorite books in the Bible. I just absolutely love this book. But you have to understand as you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, this is not like any other book in the Bible. This book is written from the perspective of somebody who knows the truth and knows the Lord, and he's writing it from a backslidden perspective. So if you're looking for deep theology, Ecclesiastes is not your book. Because you're going to run into some verses that you're going to say, I don't know what I think about that. And I'm going to say, I don't know what I think about that either. Because what's happening is God is recording what has happened in our darkest time. Imagine your darkest time, your darkest moment in the Lord, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And you're filled with questions like, I, was, should I even have been born? What's the point of life? Why am I even doing this? Now imagine that being recorded for all of eternity in history. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a book written from somebody who knows the truth but is walking in a backslidden condition. Please remember our key verses in the book of Ecclesiastes. The first one is Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He also has put eternity in their hearts. There is something in us longing for something more. Eternity is in our hearts. We know that there's more out there, and it's a constant battle to find out what is that? What does that look like? Now, we, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, has found the answer. But this book is really a picture of the world. And I tell you, I bet you got co-workers that are in what I like to call Ecclesiastes moments. Some of you may be here tonight, and you're in Ecclesiastes moment. You're like, I know the truth, but what's the purpose of this? What's the point? Now, The writer of Ecclesiastes, who we believe is Solomon, he finishes it up like this. He says right here at the end of Ecclesiastes 12, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So by the end of the book, he at least has a direction to go. Now you need to understand a little bit of Hebrew with this. The word he uses for God is not the word that we use for a close, intimate relationship with God. It's a very generic word. This man writing this book is not an atheist. He's not an agnostic. He believes that God exists, but the problem is he's not living the life. And I tell you right now, I know a lot of people that believe in the truth of Jesus. They believe in the truth of God's word. But they're living in Ecclesiastes because they know the truth, but they're not really living it. Not living up to what everything God has in store. You'll see a repetition in this book. It's mentioned in my translation, New King James, 27 times. This phrase, under the sun. Because what happens is his sole focus is what's going on this world. And I tell you right now, if you let your world be dictated by this world, you will constantly walk in depression and discouragement. This is a depressed, discouraging world. So if everything you're focusing on is what is called under the sun, that's how you're going to live in Ecclesiastes. That's why in the book of Colossians, it says, set your mind on things above. We've got to get our mind off this world and get our mind back on Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. That's where our focus is. Quick reminder, just to explain this, I'll take a look here at Ecclesiastes 1, verses 2 and 3 that we went through last week. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that word, depending on your translations, nonsense, futile, meaningless, purposeless. What profit has man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? That's the beginning of the book. What is the point of everything we're doing down on this earth? If you're not born again and saved, if you're not living for Jesus Christ, there is no point. It is meaningless and pointless and useless. 
That's the purpose of this book, is to show us that darkness and say, now really, what's the focus, what's the light? And as I mentioned to you last week when we started the book, like when we went through Job, I think a year or two ago, I would always try to look for a spot in Job where we ended on a high note. There is no high notes in the book of Ecclesiastes. So I'm telling you right now, we're always going to end every week in discouragement (laughs) because it's 12 chapters of discouragement. And you may be thinking, well, then how am I supposed to be encouraged by it? I don't know, but I am. I read through this, and I'm like, Lord, I love this. I love the honesty of this book. I love the truth of this book, that this is how sometimes I feel. This is sometimes what I think. Somebody has put this eloquently to paper, so when I read through this, I'm like, yeah, I've been there. Now, I don't want to live there. I don't want to stay there, but I've been there. And I know people that live there and stay there, so I know what they're thinking. So I want to be able to help get them out of that pit through Jesus Christ. So with that introduction being said, we did chapters 1 and 2 last week. Let's pick it up here in chapter 3. And this passage should sound very, very familiar to most of you. Verse 1, chapter 3. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones. A time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. That's just beautifully eloquent right there. Now, if you're thinking of the song as you go through that, you're thinking of this very almost peaceful, deep, wow. The context of this book, it's not deep and peaceful. The verse right before it, remember, chapter breaks and verses were not originally in there. It was one continuous thought. Look at the verse right before at the end of chapter 2. This also is vanity. And grasping for the wind. This is useless. This is pointless. Verse 9 that follows it. What profit has the worker from where in which he labors? We like to look at this as this great, peaceful, deep thing of, hey, there's seasons in life. You know, there's seasons of death. There's seasons of birth. There's seasons of weeping. There's seasons of dancing. And life is just different seasons, and we need to understand that. That is a good biblical point. I remember 21 years ago, before I got married, I was my dad and I were driving to the, um, to the church to get married. And I remember asking him, saying, what advice do you have? And I distinctly remember, 20 plus years later, he said, when it's bad, it's not going to be bad forever. And when it's good, it's not going to be good forever. Dad's walking Ecclesiastes, I guess, you know, right there. And there's a lot of truth in that marriage. And I've quoted to people, hey, when marriage is going good, amen. But remember, dark times are coming. Be prepared. Be spiritually ready for that. And when sometimes it's rough in marriage, it doesn't mean it's going to be rough forever. We've got to work through those times. So there is truth to this. But in the context of Ecclesiastes 3, this is a guy basically saying, it just keeps circling, doesn't it? Oh, great, we're celebrating the birth of a baby. Yeah, that baby's going to die. How is that? I had a junior high teacher that would tell us every single day, and I don't, he must have been the most depressed man ever. He would look at us and say, Do you kids all realize you're one day closer to death? That's how he started out class. I don't know what his problem was, but that's how he started out class. And so I look at this there's a time of laughing, verse 4. Yeah, but there's going to be a time of mourning and weeping. So everything's good now, but you just wait. 
So what does it sound like for us? It's the people, if I only, you know, what is that? What do they say? If the only luck I have is bad luck and I did, this is what my life's always like. And they're caught in this Ecclesiastes moment of woe is me. Sure, it's good now, but that just means something bad's coming down the road. I don't know about you, but I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. The Bible also tells me that God works good in all things. The Bible says in Psalms that he is good and does good. Now, his definition of good is different than my definition of good. You may have had situations go through your life and say, James, what is the good that came out of this? God's definition of good is different. But what you see here in verses 1 through 8 is the reality of life just keeps circling and cycling. It really does. Down to just the most mundane tasks. You get all the laundry caught up. And then you look around and you realize every piece of clothing that my kids are wearing is going to be dirty tomorrow. All the dishes are done, and now it's time for breakfast. The yard is immaculate, weed whack, mowed, sprayed, and then it's going to keep growing. This is the world we live in. And this man is walking in that depression of that. So he comes back to verse 9, and he says, what's the point? What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? Verse 10, I've seen the God-given task which the sons of men are to be occupied. What's the point? Who can know eternity? Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. So fine, I understand eternity, but I don't get it. Only the Lord gets it. I don't get anything. So you know what's the best thing I should do? You're going to see this as an ongoing theme in Ecclesiastes. I guess I better just eat and drink and enjoy life. Verse 12, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It's the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which has already has been and that which is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Verse 15, it just keeps repeating. What has already happened is going to happen again. So I guess the only thing I should probably do is just go out and eat and drink. Now, before you take these verses and say, hey, that sounds like a good idea. This is depression. This is discouragement. This is, what's the point? I work for what reason? I don't understand life. I don't understand death. I don't understand God. I'm not doing anything new. Verse 14, nothing can be added to it. I can't do anything new. It's just going to keep repeating. God's the only one that can do this type of stuff. And so what has already happened is going to just happen again. Verse 15, it keeps repeating. So basically, what is it? Life is bad and unfair. Verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. So the place where there's supposed to be fairness and truth, wickedness is there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. So in the place of holiness, sin is there. What's the point? I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there's a time there for every purpose and for every work. So he says finally in verse 17, you know what? At least God will separate this. He'll judge the wicked. He'll make it all right. But he's just still thinking, verse 18. I said in my heart concerning condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happen to animals. One thing befalls them as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath, as man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of animal, which goes downward to the earth? 
So I perceive that nothing is better than a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring, bring him to see what will happen after him? So he sums up chapter 3 by basically saying, hey, God will work this all out, but wait a second. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. And how am I even better than the animals? Because guess what? They're going to be born and they're going to die. So I guess I'm no better than even the animals. We're all just going to live and repeat the same life again and again, the same day again and again. And it's going to be wickedness. It's going to be iniquity. It's going to not be fair. It's not going to be truth. And then we're all going to die just like the animals. And we're all going to go back down to the ground. And verse 22, who even knows what happens after we die? That's the reality. Don't we ever get in those little spots? What's the point? We need to get up and go to work tomorrow. Why? So I can pay more bills? So I can do this? You know, don't worry about it. God's got a plan. Oh, he's got a plan? Well, what's been his great plan for my life thus far? And we get ourselves in this darkness and this depression and this discouragement because the only thing we're doing is focusing on what's under the sun. And so we stop and say, I might as well just eat, drink, and enjoy life because there's nothing else. This is the reality of what we battle sometimes. This is the life that's backslidden from the Lord. And this is where we go when we know the truth, but choose not to walk in it. Any quick questions, comments here, or anything here with chapter 3 thus far? John. Thank you. That is very eloquent. He is on a bummer trip. <laughs> on a bummer trip. How many, how many years did you work second shift? How many? Too many. You know? And to think we had all these Wednesday night services without your eloquence. How did we ever, how did we ever get through this? No, he, he is. And I don't know how in the Hebrew you would translate bummer trip. But he is on a bummer trip. And the thing is, and, and I agree, there's, there's certain verses that I do look at and I say, you know what, that, that's pretty intelligent. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to stop and realize, verse 2, I, I am born, but I am going to die. That's a realization. I, there is a realization in verse 4. There's times of weeping and laughing and mourning and dancing. And I don't think it's wrong to stop and say, that's the reality of the world we live in. The problem is when you take the whole context of this book, this guy is just constantly in this discouragement of life. Yeah, Kathy. 700 wives, and we're going to get to that. Seven. Yes, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and we're going to get to it in a little bit. He started out his life, if this is Solomon, which I firmly believe it is, he started out his wife life right on. He ended way off. Ended way off. Yes, Cindy. Um, don't, you, or don't you think that um, the world of children, adults, young adults right now, um, have not grown up with Christ like, like some of us have? And they're, they're living this. They are living this. This is their life. Because they don't have the, the Lord in their life. That's right. They never have. They Correct. 
the, the, so the, This is real life, and like I said before, I believe this is one of the most honest books in the entire Bible. Because when you look at this, this is somebody who's really honestly saying, I don't even know what the point of life is. We're going to get to in a few verses here. He's going to say, maybe I shouldn't even been born. And they, and they feel that way. Right. And this is where you say that that's the way they feel. This is where we have to get the full context of God's word. Because I think of Romans 15, verse 13, you don't need to turn there. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if these are the people we run into, then we also need to realize that we have the answer of hope, peace, and joy found through Christ and say, listen, I, I get the darkness you're in, but that's why the Bible says that God has brought light to darkness. And that's where we hopefully can then point them towards Christ. Yeah, Ryan. Uh, the verse about people being no better than animals, they're born, they die. Um, famous atheist Richard Dawkins, I think, said that there's no Yeah, and that does. Romans says the whole creation is under the curse. We all groan, and there is that. You know, you mentioned about atheists quoting that. There also are all their false cults that will go to the Bible, and they will pull this verse out and say, See, listen, man does not have an eternal soul. We just all die and go to the ground, and the only way we live is if you have been saved. And so, therefore, non-believers, they go to hell. They don't believe in the existence of the soul for non-believers, and they try to back it up with this scripture. And you've got to remember, then, if they ever try to quote that scripture to you, you've got to say, okay, well, you know what? My very wise pastor is teaching me on Wednesday nights the book of Ecclesiastes, and let me tell you the background of this book, because if you just do the scripture plucking and take out certain things, remember, stay away from what I call buffet Christianity. I'll take a little bit of this with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You can make the Bible say almost anything you want. And so, yes, that verse is in there. That verse is not theology. That verse is an honest representation of what people sometimes think. What's the point? Am I even better than an animal because they die and they become worm food? I die, I become worm food. What's the point? Well, let me tell you what the point is. And then you try to bring in Christ and hope. Anybody else got anything before we go on? Cindy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Bible shows us all kinds of people. Yeah. This is just a lot of the people that, that are in our lives or that we know of. And this is just another teaching to us that these people are out there. Yes. You know, and, and, and they need help just as much as we need it, It's a glimpse into hopefully areas that we don't go to too much, but it's an honest glimpse into sometimes what your friends, your family, your coworkers are battling. Right. This is an honesty with that. Yeah, Corbin. I just want to say real quick, uh, this idea of the general pointlessness, like when I am more Christian Dawkins, is actually the logical uh, conclusion of atheism, uh, which is why the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche said, when he said that God is dead and still in science, he immediately, in the same, in the same paragraph, said, uh, right after we killed him, the world felt colder, and how will we be murderers and so on? 
And if that's the logical conclusion of what life is, it gets us into a lot deeper discussion than what's the point of morality, what's the point of helping, etc. Um, you know, I was listening one time to an atheist speak, and he was talking about how frustrated he was that any time there's a hurricane or a natural disaster or whatever, he says, you know, the Red Cross shows up, you know, these Christian organizations show up and they hand out food, blankets, etc. And he said he was trying to activate atheists to have that same mentality of let's go show up after these natural disasters and hand out things. And he talked about the frustration he has that he can't get them to do it. There, there's not something in there that says, let's look past myself. Now, listen, I've run into atheists. I talk to atheists, and I've got to be honest with you, I love talking to atheists. Because it's like, wow, you don't believe in anything? Let's sit down and have lunch. This is a wonderful conversation. Tell me why you're so sure. And I mean that sincerely. But what happens is, you know, as a believer, I have been saved in Jesus Christ. And the deeper I go in Christ, the more I quit looking at myself. And I start looking at the world. And I realize that every single soul is eternal. And they're going to live in heaven or hell forever. So why would I not want to go talk to them? If I did not have that driving force, my whole life would be what pleases me. My whole driving force would be what we just read. Why not eat? Why not drink? Why not enjoy life? Because that's all there is. That's just, I got nothing else, so I'm just going to go work my job. That means nothing. Come home and just eat and drink and go do the whole thing again. And this is where Solomon says, what a useless vanity repetition of nothingness. Marv. Right. And, and this is the, the reality of that guy. He's trying to figure this stuff out himself. He's having struggles with this. This guy is not an atheist. He knows the truth. He's saying he looks at the animals and goes, we all die anyway. So what advantage do they have? And he goes basically about eternity. And he says in verse 22, I perceive that nothing is better than the man should rejoice in his works for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? I don't even know what's going to happen after me. And this guy's just thinking. And he's just thinking out loud. And so what happens is, in some ways this is very logical, in some ways this is also very scatterbrained, because in verse 1 of chapter 4, then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. Now there's a whole new thought. It's like he looks at the animals. It's like almost like this guy's sitting there in this stupor and just kind of just all just worked up. And he's sitting there and he's drinking something. He looks out and he looks at the animals. And he writes down, they're all going to die. I'm going to die. And then he looks at something else and he says, well, now look at this. He's just all over, and there's no logic, there's no spiritual tone with it. He believes in God, but yet there's not the living for it. Not the living. And so what he does is take a look here at verse 1. I return to consider all the oppressions done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed. So now he's got his eyes off the animals. Now he's looking at those people that are oppressed. But they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. I don't know how many times I've talked to people, I wish I never was born. That's what this guy is saying. Better is he that who has never existed. It's the people out of here. Why would you want to bring a child into this world? Well, I wish I never was born. I wish I was just dead. That's what this guy is basically saying. I praise those that are dead. They're no longer suffering. They're no longer depressed. I wish I never was born. He's going to say here in just a couple chapters, a stillborn child is better than him. 
Because they're not battling things. This is that darkness. This is that depression. Verse 4, again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. That verse is so true. What he's basically saying is, everything I work for is because of what my neighbors are doing and I'm trying to keep up with them. He goes, so basically everything I'm doing is just useless and meaningless because I'm just trying to keep up with everybody else around me. So since I'm just trying to keep up with everybody else around me, verse 5, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. So he says, I'm just going to do nothing. I'm just going to sit here and fold my hands because verse 6, better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil, grasping for the wind. Because he basically says, now, if I'm only working to keep up with my neighbors, and I'm only working to lose everything I have when I die, isn't it better for me to sit and do nothing? This is his logical conclusion. Work begets nothing. I die, leave it to somebody else. I'm doing it to keep up with other people. So shouldn't I just sit and do nothing? And now it turns to loneliness. And like Kathy mentioned earlier, written by the man that had 700 wives, 300 concubines, he's going to talk now about loneliness. Verse 7, Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there's no end to all his labors. So he's not working for kids, he's not working for brothers, he's not working for anything, but he still has to keep working. What's the point? Nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. So I constantly work, and I can never get enough stuff that I want, because my eye is never satisfied, but yet I'm also not working for anybody. So why am I working so hard for no purpose and no reason? And I tell you guys, this is the way people think. I was just talking to a guy just recently showed up out of the blue, quite a story on and of itself. And he basically said to, my, to me, he goes, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I get up, I go to work at 6 a.m., I get home every day at 2 o'clock, and I do the same thing the next day. He goes, what's the point? And I'm like, that's Ecclesiastes right there. So I'm working, 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 why? So I can just have more when I die? Because we're going to get to in a few verses here that these guys are just going to die the same as everybody else. There has to be something more to life. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, he at least seems to have his eyes a little bit on the Lord. But what he's doing is there's got to be more to life. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who's alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up again. And again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, if you've probably been to almost any marriage, that passage is almost quoted at every marriage. Almost every marriage I do is quoted, and almost every marriage I've been to is quoted. Now we think, boy, if people really knew the book that was written in... You know, just a few verses earlier, I'm like the animals, we just die. A few verses later, I wish I was a stillborn child. But right in the middle, we find this amazing verse. I remember I heard a pastor say one time about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he says, if you go read what the Pharisees and Sadducees said, you know, sometimes they said stuff that was really profound. They just didn't really realize it was profound. It's the same thing here. This is a really profound verse. One person by himself is weak. Two people together is a little bit better. But then when you get to verse 12, three. 
a threefold cord. And if you've seen that, you know what he's talking about. Three separate ropes coming together. I, I've done marriages before where they literally take three cords. And during the marriage ceremony, they actually make the rope that way right during the middle of it. And it's supposed to be a picture of the bride, the groom, and Jesus Christ. You know, because Corinthians says, For no other foundation can be laid other than the foundation of Christ Jesus. And it's supposed to be that wonderful picture that one rope by itself can snap. Two ropes together is a little stronger, but three together, that's where you get real strength. That's the real point and purpose. And so it's that idea of your wife, the husband, and Christ. Threefold cord together, and that's the power of it. It's a really profound verse right there in the middle of darkness. Okay, now before we get to the rest of this, if anybody else got any quick questions, comments about anything here? Cindy. And you mentioned the key word there, purpose. Purpose. And, and this is where I think when we get born again and saved, all of a sudden we see a purpose in what we're doing. I look at every single thing I do as a little missionary field, and every interaction I have is potentially spiritual. I remember when I used to work for the village of Ottawa, we had to do this thing called reading water meters. And so what happened is once a month we had to go out and spend the whole day walking block after block after block reading water meters. And a lot of the guys just absolutely hated it. Just hated this mundane, you walk up, look at the water meter, write down the numbers, next one. And just repetition. I loved it. I thought, I'm being paid to walk the streets of Ottawa as a missionary. And so to me, there was a purpose. It wasn't mundane in anything whatsoever. You are actually paying me, let me get this straight, to walk into people's backyards. I know it sounds creepy. But to walk into people's backyards and then represent the village in a polite, nice way and start up a conversation... This is wonderful. But when you start having a purpose, all of a sudden you start realizing, I'm not just working to earn a paycheck. I'm not just doing this to do it. I, I go out and I mow my yard. That's purposeful to me. It's a time for me to listen to a message. It's a time for me to listen to praise and worship. And, and I think of those passages where it says, in anything you do, do all for the glory of the Lord. It's a decision that we have to make to stop and say, Lord, there's nothing mundane in this life. There's nothing common. Everything can be representative of Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm going to do. The writer here, Solomon Ecclesiastes, does not have that mindset. He starts looking at work and life, and next thing you know, he goes, what's the point? 
I wish I was just dead. I wish I didn't exist. Get your eyes off the here and now, as it says. Get your eyes off the under the sun. And get your eyes on eternity. Colossians, set your mind on things above. Yeah. It does. And that's where it's so important going back to that. It's a horrible and hard way to live. It is a horrible and hard way to live. And it goes back to that verse in Romans. That's why there's a God of hope that we need to constantly keep sharing that hope with. Constantly keep doing that. I want to at least get through chapter 4 here. What's that? I didn't say that. I mean, I was thinking it, but I did not say it. I did not say it. I'm just kidding, Cindy. I'm kidding. I love you. I know. I love it. I love it. I mean, everybody else here doesn't care. At least you and I. You know what? We're loving Jesus. Uh, And John's on a bummer trip or whatever John's doing over there. I don't even know. What's that? You're you're retired. What do you care? Yeah, that's right. That's right. No. No cross talking. No. No. Yeah. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 13. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who would be admonished no more, for he comes out of prison to be king. And although he was born poor in his kingdom, I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were all but the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over him who he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and grasping for the wind. You know, like I said, I believe that Solomon is writing this. And I believe Solomon is writing this at the end of his life. Would you please go with me to 1 Kings chapter 3? What he's saying is, listen, the youthful king that's poor... But wise, First Kings chapter 3, the youthful king that is poor but wise is better than the old powerful king who is so stubborn, who is so stuck in his ways that he would not allow any correction, any admonishment, anything whatsoever. What a picture of Solomon. He starts out young and wise in the Lord. He ends up powerful and mighty but stubborn and stuck. I tell you, there are times when I go get a chance to witness and talk to people that are on the other side of life, going downhill rather than up. And I tell you, they are so stuck in what they believe and think. And you're just like, oh my goodness, what a stubbornness there. The Bible uses the term stiff-necked. They won't budge, they won't move. So look at the young Solomon. Remember what we just read in Ecclesiastes. Better the poor and wise young king than the old foolish king that has everything but won't accept any correction. Look at the young king Solomon, 1 Kings 3, start in verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statue of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was the great high place. There's no temple at this time, remember? Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? Think about that, verse 5, for a second. Think about what the answer you should give. 
And think about the answer that you really want to give. Verse 6, Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him. You have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? That's the poor, wise king that was smart enough to realize he didn't know everything. Verse 10, the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Now, just jump ahead to 1 Kings chapter 11, same book. He builds the temple. He is blessed with riches. He's blessed with everything. 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, the old king that would not accept admonishment that we just read. 1 Kings 11, verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. So for it was so when Solomon was old, here we go, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord, that is, father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burnt incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. That right there. Now go back to Ecclesiastes, please. Now when you read verses 13 through 16 of chapter 4, you realize Solomon, this is almost an autobiography. It was better when I was the wise, poor, youthful king. I knew what was right. I knew what I was doing. And now that I'm the old king, I don't listen to correction. I won't listen to advice. I won't listen to counsel. I know I'm wrong. I'm still not going to listen to it because I'm stuck in my ways. And look how he sums it up. Verse 16, there was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Solomon had everything. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. They're not going to rejoice in me because I'm ending bad. Surely this is also vanity and grasping for the wind. I tell you, this book is such a wonderful book of you could literally have everything you want and still not have peace and joy. Remember what we say all the time. We're not trying to make you happy. We're not trying to make your marriage happy. I want you to be saved, and I want your marriage to be glorifying Jesus Christ and peaceful and joyful in Him. Because happy people can still go to hell. Some of the happiest people I ever met did not have Jesus, but they sure were a happy person. Solomon literally had everything, and he was on the wrong track. It was vanity, useless, meaningless, purposeless. And what happens is the problem is he knows the truth, but he's not walking in it. And I just want to encourage you as we close here tonight. You guys are here. You're here on a Wednesday night. You know the truth. You want to know the truth. You want to go deeper. But you're only going to find that true joy and peace when there's that true surrender of everything. And you get past this under-the-sun world. That it's not about the here and now. It's not about what I have. It's not about fulfilling my desires, my checklist, my wants. 
It's about giving my life completely over to Jesus Christ and all that I do and say. That's what it's about. Anybody got any final questions, comments, about anything here? Ryan. Uh, the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, where tomorrow we die, is often associated with this book. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something that I've been Mm-hmm. That's, there's a lot of you know nihilists and atheists and evolutionists who think you know why should we get married and have a kid because why should we bring them into the former world and in their own words why should we you know bring the property yeah and you still see that mindset today. And that's the problem is we're looking at everything under the sun. Please remember that phrase is used twenty-seven times in this book because this whole focus is here where the Lord is telling us look above. Look above. Anybody else got any final questions? Thanks. John. Uh, I know the difference between wisdom and obedience. God wants obedience. And, but doesn't wisdom dictate obedience? Does it tell you? I don't, I don't know Solomon's the wisest man ever. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm seeing disobedience, but yet wisdom can say obedience is the right thing to do. Wisdom will say it's the right thing to do, but you still need the diligence and the follow-through to do it. Well, no, not like we have it today. Plus, you've got to remember, David is the only man in the Bible mentioned after man after God's own heart. He still chased Bathsheba. Um, who was it? Was it uh, Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. And Moses got into some issues with that. Abraham was the friend of God, but yet lied. I mean, there's all these things where we know it. But we just don't put it into practice. I tell you right now, after doing 20 years of counseling, how many times I go into a counseling session with somebody and they tell me their problem and I say, what do you think you should do? Nine times out of ten, they know what to do. It's the follow through. You guys are going to go home tonight. You know what to do. You know to give your life to the Lord. You know to be in the Word. You know to go pray with your wife. You know to go lead your family spiritually. We know what to do. It's the follow through. And then we sit here and wonder, why isn't everything different? Why am I depressed? Why is my life not feel like it has purpose? Because we're not doing what we're supposed to do. Solomon knows what to do. He's just not doing it. All right. Anything else there? Shirley. I'm not even going there, Shirley, here tonight. How, how dare you bring up eternal security there at, on a Wednesday night at 8.04? Seriously. I personally think, I, I, I think we'll see Solomon in heaven. Um, I, I think we will. Um, I think that Solomon, towards the end of his life, he did not finish strong. And, you know, and I think that's, you take a look at Samson. You know, Samson's in Hebrews 11 as in a man of faith. And if you read Samson's life, I mean, seriously, I, I've joked about this before. I encourage you to go home, read the story of Samson in the book of Judges, gather up all your little kids, and find one good thing to teach your kids be like Samson. Go get Philistine prostitutes just like Samson. Go lie to everybody just like Samson. Go kill people left and right just like Samson. Samson ended strong. And I think of what it says in the book of 1 John. They started out with us, but they did not finish with us because they were not of us. I hope, and, I, and you, some of you don't come up to me afterwards and try to debate me on something. I hope I see him in heaven. I, I think at the end of Ecclesiastes, I think he's done with his little rant. I think he's done with his little woe is me. And I think he stops, he looks at himself and says, you know what? Fear God and keep his commandments. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I'm supposed to do. So I hope he does. Cindy, that's okay. I think we've all been here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, it's just too 
Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the key thing there, is that idea of this too shall pass. There are seasons, as we read in Ecclesiastes 3, and we've all had Ecclesiastes moments. We may have not publicized them, but we've all been here. We've all been here. So, hey, it's after 8 o'clock. You guys have kids in the back. We need to let you go to get them. Would you guys stand with me here for prayer, please? Uh, Lord, as we just come to you now, I pray that we could truly live it out, not just talk about it, but truly live it. I, I just look at this book. If there's anybody here tonight in Ecclesiastes, that you would just show them light in the darkness, show them that you are the God of hope. And as we run into people throughout this week that may be in Ecclesiastes, help us to represent the truth of Jesus Christ to them. We do not want to live under the sun. We want to set our mind on things above. We want to finish the race strong. Lord, help us to run the race with endurance all the way to the end, our last breath, Lord. Uh, I, just, I just pray that we would have that vigor and that determination in you. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. Hey, if anybody has anything they want to pray about, feel free to pop up here. I'd love to pray with you. You guys have a good week, and God bless.